of it. Okay. So one of the things that is a tip that there's more to dig into on this is that the governor put out a statement after this so-called bailout. He says it's not a bailout, but it's a bailout, was announced. And that is that this will allow affordable housing projects and our nonprofits to keep their doors open. And that just makes you wonder why affordable housing projects and nonprofits that the governor is calling out specifically, why were they banking with this venture capital bank? What is going on here? This just begins to sound like government intervention at a high level, maybe to the point of it being a political slush fund, where this is the bank that the political movers and shakers could go to to get their friends funded when nobody else would do it, rather than go face number crunchers who are unsentimental and, and very harsh and want to see balance sheets and want to see where the money's coming from. Maybe this was the place that people could go and not have so many questions. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I think it's a very, uh, like, uh, I mean, that's just, what, how else do you explain some of this stuff? Um, Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Steve Hilton Show. There's a big, big story across the country that stems from here in California, which is here in California, literally right where I am taping this. You could just picture me in my bunker in the heart of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley Bank, of course, has collapsed. That just happened in the last few days. We're taping this on Monday, which is the morning after the bailout that they don't want you to call a bailout happened. And I'm going to be getting into all of that with our friend Susan Shelley. And the really interesting thing about it, and it should come as no surprise to those of you who listen to this show regularly, is that there's an appalling California governance angle to this. It's been covered as a national story. Of course, it is a national story because it affects the whole country. But yet again, it's an example of, of the consequences of the kind of political cronyism and incompetence that we now take for granted um, in our state government. And there's a really interesting angle to that about the Silicon Valley bank collapse and bailout that we will get to uh, with Susan Shelley. But first, there's a really great conversation I want you to listen to with Emily Hoven, used to be at Cal Matters, journalist at Cal Matters. Now she's at the San Francisco Chronicle. And there's a few stories we talked about that she's been focused on that are just really interesting. The first is, it's another example of the craziness of the, of the criminal justice reform, where they just push it and push it so far to the extreme, just makes absolutely no sense. And you have Republicans now trying to bring it back to some kind of semblance of common sense. The other week, we had a conversation about human trafficking and a California legislator who is trying to make human trafficking, sex trafficking, unbelievably, it's not considered a violent felony. She's trying to change that. That is also true, unbelievably, of domestic violence. Domestic violence not considered, not treated as a violent crime in California. And there's an effort to try and change that. So we're going to get into that. There's a ludicrous story from Sausalito in the Bay Area, just across the Bay from San Francisco, about the kind of crazy consequences of this, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the housing crisis and how they're going about tackling it with these kind of top-down bills from, from Sacramento. This particular community, I mean, you just wait till you hear what they did to try and uh, meet their targets that were, were set to them, uh, set for them by the state. I'll give you a hint. Sausalito is on the bay. It is on the water. Uh, wait till you hear what they did. 
to try and meet their targets. And then finally, we got a conversation with Emily, which was really interesting. Again, not something I'd really focused on, but about the conservatorship laws in California. Uh, that is something that you normally associate because it's been such a big news story with um, Britney Spears and all of that. Nothing to do with that. This is actually a really, really interesting story about how a change in the conservatorship laws could help us deal with the homeless situation by getting people off the streets and into the treatment they need. So really, really good, meaty topics there with Emily. And then we will talk to Susan Shelley about Silicon Valley Bank and the California connection. Here's Emily. So, Emily, we've got a lot to get to, uh, some really meaty stories that you've been covering, and they're all uh, really interesting and different. Um, so let's not waste any time. The first one is about this bill, SB 43. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a bill uh, that was put forward by uh, Susan Eggman. She's a Democratic state senator. Um, and this is a bill that would essentially expand the definition of gravely disabled in California. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a definition that is very central to being able to request that someone um, be put in a conservatorship when they suffer from very severe uh, mental illness. Um, and right now, the standards are pretty cut and dry in this sort of LPS law, as it's known. Um, mm -hmm. And basically, as long it doesn't really matter what condition you have, as long as you're able to provide yourself with food and some kind of shelter and some kind of clothing, basically you are not really being able to be put into into help and care even if you are not aware of your own mental health condition um and so this bill would basically expand that to say that if because of this mental health condition you are causing yourself you know physical or mental harm for example if you aren't able to recognize like oh i have this infection and i should go to the doctor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that should be a um a qualifying factor to be able to help put you in a conservatorship and another thing that it would do is that when these severely mentally ill people are um, being heard in court in these conservatorship hearings to determine whether or not they qualify. As it stands right now, if you, if, if one of the um, expert witnesses is essentially citing some sort of documents or notes or findings from psychiatrists or other medical professionals, but they themselves are not that person, uh, it can be considered hearsay and as such is not really admissible evidence. And so this bill would say that no, you know, if you're uh, if you're an expert witness and you are citing like this psychiatrist's evidence or findings of this person's mental, you know, state, that can stand. It doesn't. It does. It's not just hearsay. Um, so those are two of the main things that it would do. Interesting. And is the is the main purpose of this to deal with people um, who are experiencing homelessness? Is that the kind of is that the real kind of thought process here or is it because when people hear the word conservatorship, I'm just, you know, like in, in, who don't follow the news closely, they think, wait, is, is this something to do with Britney Spears? Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the what's the yeah. sort of main point here? No, it's actually funny that you bring that up, because when she was introducing the bill, uh, Senator Eggman was like, this is not the Britney Spears thing. Because that's, <laughs> right, that's, exactly. Uh, because that's actually a different category of conservatorship. Right. Um, and so this category, you know, I don't it doesn't exclusively apply to people who are homeless. But I think what you're frequently going to see is that people that are severely mentally ill are the ones who are likely going to be on the streets because they're kind of unable yes. to recognize the condition that they're in um, and they're not able to seek help. They don't realize that they're sick. Um, and so, you know, there was a there was a very famous example of this man named James Rippey and his family had been trying for years to get him into a conservatorship, but he wasn't a threat to himself or other people, even though he was very clearly ill. And so they were never able to actually get him into a conservatorship. And then he ended up dying partially because of a, of a urinary tract infection, 
which if you had been able to recognize that, you yeah. would go and it's get treated. so sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw that. That's a great example because it's just it's such an awful and especially, you know, I think that's what that's what we often forget with um, the homelessness issue is the individual people and the humanity. And often it, it is they're, they're not sort of random um, atomized people who just sort of fall from the sky. They are people with families who are aware of the fact that they're 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 on the street and want to do something to help. But the, the, it's very interesting that, that these barriers are there and this bill tries to remove them. Yeah, and it will be really interesting to see what the response is in the legislature, um, because actually a similar bail, a similar bill failed last year. Uh, mm -hmm. Yelled to advance, and there have been a lot of concerns that are raised by you know certain disability rights advocates, civil rights advocates, who fear that it will basically lead to you know the state just sweeping up all these people and putting them right. in institutions and not actually helping them. And um, but you know the bill has the support of a lot of psychiatrists and behavioral health experts, as well as the the big city mayors, which are the mayors of California's 13 biggest cities because many of them are kind of on the line with their constituents about, look, there are people in the streets who are screaming, they're, yeah. na they're naked, they're very clearly sick, and they may not be you know, harming people, but it's not humane to just allow them to live out in the, in the cold like that, live in their, live in their own waste. Um, yeah, so, interesting. But Susan Eggman is co more confident this year that because the legislature, you know, there's a lot of new members, she's hopeful that this bill will advance this year. And is, did she, is it bipartisan? It sounds like it, it should by, be. It, it is bipartisan. Yeah, yeah excuse me. Um, yeah. And James Gallagher, for example, he's the Assembly Republican leader. He mm -hmm. was there speaking in support of the bill. Great. Um, so it's nice I to see something like that. Um, absolutely. What about, there's a couple of questions I had specifically. Do, does it connect with Gavin Newsom's Care Courts um, initiative? That's a great question. And it's one that I also asked at the press conference announcing this bill, because what is, I think, kind of confusing to me and remains to be seen is how exactly a bill like this would intersect with care courts. Because one of the key differences here is that care courts, the governor has taken pains to emphasize that it is voluntary. So people right. would not be forced into treatment. They would not be forced into housing. Whereas when you are in this conservatorship, Basically, you can be forced to take medication. You can be forced to be in certain programs. Mm -hmm. And so for me, what is unclear is that if you have a severely mentally ill person, are they going to go through that conservatorship route or are they going to go through that care court route? Because one of them, they're, they're very different and they could have very right. different outcomes. And it sort of seems like they're not entirely sure how those two things might intersect. I think the hope is that Care, court, care courts will prevent people from ever getting to the point where they are so ill that they would need I to see. be placed in the conservatorship. Okay. But again, I think this will all kind of take a lot of time to sort of see how they're, how they're implemented and how they intersect. And to the point that the critics have made about, um, you know, the state sweeping people up, as it were, who can apply for conservative? Do you do you have to have a personal relationship? Can I mean clearly a family member? You talked about that example, the tragic example of, of the person who died, that would be rectified by this. But what about? I mean, can the a local city council, for example, or, or police department, or you know, who can use this process? That's really interesting. I actually am not entirely sure about that on the conservatorship side. I'm under the impression that it is generally families. But mm -hmm. I know one of the things that would be different with care court is that a wider variety of people yeah. would be able to um, ask that this person go through this process. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, but on conservatorship specifically, I think it might depend on the type of conservatorship, um, but I'm not. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Very interesting. And it's nice, pleasing actually. Every time you hear something that's, I mean, I keep saying this the whole time. I think people are really tired of the sort of on both sides the sort of ideological, the, sorry, the ideological kind of extremism from both sides, and they just want well, the vast majority of people just want positive, practical, pragmatic policies that solve problems. You know, and this seems to be, or well, you know, go yeah, towards solving so, problems. This seems so to be a really good example. Um, this next story was just—I mean, we just touched on it a little bit before we started taping. I mean, it's—it's it's sort of. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious, but but it's a really serious story as well. Um, it's about Sausalito and how they have, um, which in the in the Bay Area, for those who don't know, Sausalito, beautiful, um, f- famous place. Opposite, isn't that where sitting on the dock of the bay was Sausalito? Isn't that the sort of famous thing about Sausalito? I don't know. That song. I think so. That's not based yeah. on source. I, th- I don't know. Maybe I'm getting that completely wrong. I don't know Any- either, actually. Um, but anyway, it's the bay. It's opposite San Francisco, across the bay from San Francisco. Beautiful place. Um, and they, like other municipalities up and down the state, have been, you know, desperately trying to meet these requ- the requirements of um, building housing to meet the state plan and then not get punished for failing to do so. And they've got a novel approach, let's say. <laughs> Tell us what they've been doing. Yes. Um, so, as you said, all of these local governments across the state, they basically have to submit plans outlining how they're going to accommodate um, overall 2.5 million new homes by 2030, which is obviously quite a lot of homes. Um, and the rules have changed in the recent years to make those allotments larger um, and there's stronger you know, penalties if you don't meet them. So a lot has changed in, in recent years. And I think a lot of cities are still adapting to that. Um, that being said, there is a lot of pushback um, within the cities about these goals. Actually, the city of Huntington Beach mm-hmm. in California are engaged in a legal battle over this that was just announced today. Um, in Sausalito as well, they tried to appeal the amount of homes that the state told them to build, which was 724 new homes. Um, and basically, that they lost that appeal. And so they had to kind of come forward and put this plan about how they were going to do it. And... What we saw was this basically last minute scramble to identify sites on which they could actually develop these homes. And at one point, and until the very last day that they approved the plan, (laughs) there was a parcel identified on their map that was literally in the bay. And (laughs) and it was a patch of underwater eelgrass, which I am learning is this sort of like rich biological habitat that's like really good for the environment. Environmental groups love it. And they were like, yeah, no, we're going to build 35 homes on this underwater property, um, including most of them are going to be for very low income and low income people. And then everyone was kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, <laughs> this is and the thing that was that I could actually could not stop laughing about as I was reporting the story is they have like this so-called site inventory where they basically list the address of the property and they talk about what they're going to build on it. And the address for this property was in Bay. (laughs) That's amazing. And I looked at it and I'm like, how is this, how is this possible? (laughs) And, you know, their sort of approach was, oh, you know, we're going to have houseboats on here. And like, oh my gosh, boats, like it wasn't truly going to be, you know, underwater, but it was just hilarious to see this, this literal patch of the water. Like we're going to build 35 homes here. Um, and then it comes out that they recognize, oh, wait, this is like a rare habitat. We, pro- we probably shouldn't like tear up the eelgrass. 
And then not only that, but there are various state commissions that put extreme limitations on how many like livable houseboats you can even have. So it became pretty clear that Amazing. they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> Amazing. And, and But the thing is, it's, it's, I mean, it is hilarious. I love that in Bay, yeah. not even addressed. <laughs> but the thing that's, that's imp- important for people to understand is that it is a real pressure. I mean, it is, and, yeah. and there's two bits of it I'd like to just bring up and see, see, see what your response would be. First of all, the the reason that this is all much more of a priority for the lo- for the local government is that the state government has made it much more of a priority. Well, that whatever you think about what they're doing or how they're doing it, they're really. I mean, for I, for years the criticism has been this is not a new process. This whole kind of you know local areas having to identify housing because the housing crisis has been going on and growing for years. But in the past, they've kind of ignored local governments have kind of ignored it, and the state government has ignored that. Whereas now. They're really clamping down and they're kind of suing them and so on. Attorney General Rob Bonta is really aggressive on it and so on. So they're really worried that they could, you know, something would happen. They've got to deliver. And then the other part of it is, I'd love you to sort of talk to this a bit, especially, which is this builder's remedy, which is part of the sanction. If you don't, if you, if you as the local council don't um, deliver the right number or identify the right number, then this builder's remedy kicks in. Yeah, and this is um, actually kind of a relatively untested provision of California law because just as you were saying, for years it was in place, but because these plans were never really taken that seriously, it wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, But now people are realizing, oh, hey, there's this like old part of the law that basically allows developers in any city that does not have a compliant plan as determined by the state they can basically build whatever property they want, regardless of local zoning and things like that, as long as there is a certain percentage of affordable units, I believe about 20% affordable. Um, and so that means that, you know, theoretically, and this is the thing that has kind of geared a lot of communities that mm-hmm. are with single family homes and whatnot, is that if they don't have a compliant plan, you could have a developer come in and say, hey, I'm going to build a 40 foot tall apartment building, you know, 40 stories with certain amount of affordable units and they're like oh my lord we're gonna have like this our neighborhood character is gonna be destroyed and things like that um but you know the legal extent of this and the ramifications of this have kind of yet to be determined but that is one of the reasons why Sausalito was so desperate to identify these sites because they were like (laughs) if we don't pass a plan by the um by the deadline people are going to come in and start having these builders remedy application uh (laughs) And I just do want to clarify that they did eventually remove the eelgrass patch. But as I said, it was literally like right before the end of the meeting where they were like, we, we can't do this. Oh, my um, gosh. But I, I mean, you are definitely going to see there have already been a number of these builders remedy applications filed in the Bay Area and um, some in Southern California as well. So it'll be really interesting to see how many buildings like that actually get developed. Interesting. By the way, what did they replace it with? Did, did they, are they compliant now? So that is the million dollar question. So this is actually a whole other legal wrinkle that they have, right? Because they're like, oh, we adopted a plan by the deadline. But the problem was that the plan they adopted has not been green lighted by the state. Um, And so it sort of seems that they still are not, quote unquote, legally compliant. And what they did with those uh, other sites was they basically, so there was another water-based site one that already does have houseboats on it they were like okay we're gonna just add more homes here and then they spread out some of the remaining homes within uh, the city of Sausalito 
So we will see what the state says in response to that, um, because, you know, they, they adopted it before the state had a chance to review it. It's such an, I mean, look, it's a huge question. I mean, I, I'm, inc- I'm, I'm, as I mentioned to you, I'm spending more and more time th- looking into it and speaking about it because it just affects everyone um, so much. It's not just the, I mean, people think of it, well, you know, the individuals who can't get a home, but yeah. it's not just that. It's about the impact on the environment of people having to live miles from where they work and commuting and so on. It's about family impact. If, you, if you've if you got a two or three hour commute each way every day when you're working, yeah. you know, that yeah. cuts into your family time. It's about um, our essential workers being, I mean, there's so much to it. I think one of the interesting things is the, um, so I had a great conversation with Assemblymember Kevin McCarty. I always say it like that so people don't think I'm talking about <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, he has a bill which has been passed and signed and is therefore, you know, in, in the in the works, I guess, now of being implemented, which was converting unused government buildings into residential, which is like very smart, again, pragmatic, pol- positive, common sense. And so I'm interested in, 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 in taking that further and looking at what's happening with a lot, of, you know, and it is being discussed, which is converting commercial um, property into residential. In other words, existing built infrastructure and seeing what you can do to, to turn that into housing. Because I think it may be one way of getting to what we need without some of these battles. Um, anyway, it's a massive issue. This, this housing issue is just going to get bigger and bigger. Um, no, I, yeah, I absolutely, quick thing, I absolutely yeah. agree. And I think in the city of San Francisco, especially that debate is going to be huge. Because you have seen all these tech companies and their workers just, you know, they're not in the office anymore. And so the downtown is it's dead. It's going to lead yes. to more, more crime, more homelessness, more people are not going to feel comfortable going shopping downtown. And so there was assembly member Matt Haney introduced yes. a bill to kind of incentivize developers or, you know, offices to turn themselves into housing. And I think that's going to, well, I honestly think that for San Francisco, they might need something like that to actually literally yes. save city as we know it. No, I totally agree. And I funnily yeah. enough, I looked at that bill and it's great. I worry that it's not, it's actually, now we're getting in the weeds of all this, but it's a little <laughs> bit um, optimistic, let's put it like that, in terms of that, the, the, the financial incentive there, because yeah. it's, it's actually pretty expensive to do these conversions because of the, for all sorts of reasons. And so it may need to be a bit more structured than than a, gr- a grant program, which I, I think is what's in that. We'll see. But it's a good, it's the right direction for sure. I mean, he's onto the right issue, I think. Um, yeah. Let's talk about this other bill, which again, very interesting. Um, and it connects with the conversation we had on this show a few weeks ago about human trafficking and how the current law doesn't consider it a, a violent crime. Um, and this is also true of the, there is an issue at the heart of a new bill from Joe Patterson, who we've also had on the show. Uh, tell us about this. Yeah, so um, Assemblymember Patterson's bill um, would essentially also categorize domestic violence and other violent sex-related crimes um, as violent felonies in California. Um, it's a, it's it's an issue that has come up before in the legislature and, and has failed, and I think the predominant reason why um, is that there is extreme reluctance among Democratic lawmakers to increase criminal penalties of any mm-hmm. kind that could mm-hmm. result in longer prison sentences. Incarceration, yeah. More people in prison. Um, I mean, I even remember last year there was a bill that would raise the penalties for spousal rape to equal those of regular rape. 
Um, and the bill at first was denied hearing because the chairs of the public safety committees in the legislature said this is going to result in more black and brown men being put in prison. Oh, my God. Uh, and then there was some coverage, some press coverage of the bill. Like, why is this not even getting a chance to be debated? And it had a hearing, it passed, and it was signed into law. And I think for me and for a lot of other observers, there's this question of, I understand the desire to move away from mass incarceration and from policies that are you know implemented with racial biases but you can't do that because at the same time what about all of these women who are yeah. being harmed you know maybe even black and brown women like you're ignoring a huge part of the equation here um and so that that was kind of always very disturbing to me and um i remember last year in sacramento when there was the mass shooting um with the it was the gang shootout basically um, oh yes the Martin brothers, including Smiley Martin, and all of the three men that were convicted, that were um, charged with murder uh, in that case, had histories of domestic violence. And we are not talking here about mm. what is misdemeanor domestic violence, which is essentially, you know, very minimal injuries. And misdemeanor public uh, domestic violence, the worst you're going to get is a year in jail. Frequently, you end up with probation and you have to go through a program to kind of help you address anger management and things like that. Um, felony domestic violence is... A whole other level where you know that is a much more serious level of injury that is inflicted um on on the victim mm -hmm. and that was what these three men had been um in wow. some cases convicted of convicted some of them have been charged um and thinking about that relationship there was some research i came across that showed that um in the united states um 68 of the mass shootings that happened between 2014 and 2019 were committed by a person who either had a history of domestic violence or uh, killed their own family member or partner in the shooting. That's um, an amazing number. It's it's astronomical. Two thirds. Yes. Amazing. Yes. And there are all these other sorts of so-called private mass shootings that happen all the time, which we even saw in Sacramento again, um, where we had an estranged father you know, kill his three daughters and then their chaperone and himself while he was on, um, you know, sort of a, a visit to see his kids with, with a custody arrangement. And so those are so-called like private shootings because they're within families, but it's still the best and there's still yeah. many people who are being killed. And for me, it really raised the question of, okay, you know, every time we have a mass shooting in California, we have Democrats coming out with bills to further restrict firearms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I commend those efforts at the same time I think that we have to look at who are the people that are committing these crimes. Mm -hmm. And we have this research that yeah. shows the vast majority of them are people who are... It's incredibly interesting. I mean, it's all, yeah. you know, it's literally the first fresh and thought-provoking, and but actually sort of in a way optimistic thing I've heard in relation to mass shootings because it gives you a path forward. It says, this is a real connection established by data. We can do yeah. something about that. Yep. It is. And I think that, you know, classifying domestic violence as a violent crime, you know, to address the concerns about mass incarceration, this is going to affect a very small subset of people. Again, the, the vast majority of domestic violence cases, if they even go to criminal court, which most of them don't, they just go to civil court and that's where you get a restraining order and things mm -hmm. like that. But the ones that are going to criminal court, most of them are misdemeanors. It is it is truly only and this is something that I've heard talking to advocates and to prosecutors. It's the worst of the worst that mm. are getting felony domestic violence convictions where they are able to prove in court that this victim sustained, you know, significant injuries. 
Um, and so those people would most likely end up at, with longer sentences, and they would also have more serious consequences in the future if they commit further further crimes. And I think that's really important because with the Martin brothers and things like that, I went to the courts and I looked at their 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 criminal records, and they were very long. Um, and so. Even though in one case, you know, Smiley Martin, he beat his partner so badly that there was blood completely covering her eyes and she was effectively blinded. Um, the the sentence that you get is very small. And because in California as well, we have this new policy, um, the criminal justice system, because of Proposition 57, yeah. the state prison system was empowered to create new credit earning opportunities for inmates um, to, you know, for good behavior and for educational programs, things like that. They can essentially, if you are a nonviolent felon, you can cut your sentence uh, in half. Um, And if you are a violent felon, that is reduced to 33%. Um, And so what my argument was is that, okay, if you have the violent felony designation, you're going to earn those credits at a little bit of a slower rate, which is actually going to allow you to participate in more programs to actually rehabilitate yourself and that is right. time that you are out possibly getting a gun and committing these acts yeah it's so thank you for laying that all out so clearly and making those connections and it just makes sense i mean look the thing that i always find when i talk about this is that criminal justice you know i agree with the impulse there and the, and the motivation yeah. for that and it's absolutely true on again the data shows it there were far too many people incarcerated for non-violent crimes because of various legacy policies and so absolutely. on three strikes is the most famous example and so, and and they should never have been in jail and it's not good for them not good for society it causes all sorts of social problems economic problems that are connected uh, in in particular communities particularly with you know fam whether that's family or you know, drugs welfare crime shootings as you say. yeah there's a real mess there that needed to be cleaned up but i just feel it's gone to the extreme and most things if you go to the extreme end up being bad in any direction when it comes to policy and so you've got these are clearly violent crimes you know the i i don't think the criminology it wasn't like abolished prison i mean maybe some activists i mean by the way i know that some activists say that i've heard them say it but generally speaking it the, the 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 motivation there was let's use prison for the for the violent criminals that really do need to be there to both protect society and to have a measure of society's kind of you know, uh, judgment on the on the nature of the crime and and violence towards women, especially this kind of the violence with like the felony. You know, I think most people would agree with that. No, it you're I I I agree, and you know it's interesting because I actually asked Attorney General Rob Bonta about this last year, right before his uh, his election, mm-hmm. and you know af- after this mass shooting in Sacramento, I said, you know, do do you support these types of efforts? And he said, I think if you asked any person on the street is domestic violence a violent crime they would say yes and so maybe it's time that we reconsider that and that is exactly my point with my piece which is are there problems with our with our prison systems like are people actually being rehabilitated in there like frequently no frequently prisons are inciting violence and that's that's a problem but that is completely separate from how our justice system classifies certain crimes and it defies, in my opinion, it defies all logic to say that domestic violence is not a violent crime. Exactly. And I think that it's an affront to women um, in a state that purports to want to protect women's rights. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I and I agree with the advocates that want to reform the criminal justice system. But that has nothing to do with our penal code. Very well uh, put. Yeah. 
Yeah. What are you? What are the chances of this bill? Where, where does it stand? You, Joe Patterson, he's Republican. Yeah. Um, is this bipartisan? What's what's going to happen? So as of now, uh, it is just hit, just Patterson. He does not have a Democratic co-author at this time. The bill is going to get its first hearing in the Public Safety Committee on March 14th. And so I will be there and sort of reporting on what the dynamics are. I think that, you know, I, I talked with the assembly member after after my article came out and he actually told me um, I didn't even know about this relationship between domestic violence and gun violence when I had the bill. To me, it was just an idea of mm-hmm. why is it violent when it's clearly violent. But he said, I think this research does really bolster the argument yes. kind of a different perspective because there are many Democrats who are concerned um, about mass shootings and also... There are many Democrats that understand the very pernicious effect that domestic violence has on women. Of course. Uh, there are women in the legislature who are outspoken survivors mm-hmm. of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think kind of being able to just bring up those points, we'll see where the discussion goes. But yeah. I think that is a new, it's a new element. It's not just about incarceration. It's about um, justice for victims and it's about calling, a, calling something what it is. Exactly. Well, I'm so glad you not just wrote it, but but came and took the time to explain it all to us, as well as the other stories. Fantastic, Emily! Great to see you. Um, it sounds like you're really thriving in your new uh, in your new role. Tell everyone where they can follow your work and 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 keep up with what you're looking at. Yes, thank you so much, Steve. Um, so I am now at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, working as a, an opinion columnist and also writing editorials um, on behalf of the editorial board. So we, you know, decide which policies to endorse, bills, politicians. Um, so you can find us at sfchronicle.com. Um, and yeah, my pieces are usually I publish once or twice a week, um, but it depends. So thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time to talk to me. About, and social about- media, where they can people can follow you? Yes. Uh, Twitter is um, Emily, Sla- Emily underscore Hoven, H-O-E-V-E-N. Fantastic. Well, I highly recommend it. Great to see you. I'd love to talk to you about after that hearing and see where that bill, uh, where, what happens as it moves forward. We hope it will move forward. Um, We'll see. Thank you, Emily. Great to see you. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Steve. All right. As promised, here is Susan Shelley. Uh, Susan, it's great to see you. What what about this this, uh, Silicon Valley bank um, collapse? It's really interesting. You and I were both on the same track here because independently, um, before we, we met up to tape this, we've been looking into the, as I said at the top of the show, the California connection. Um, we'll get into that in a, in a minute. I'll just ex- actually quickly explain what, what I mean by that is that this bank that collapsed was actually regulated by the California authorities. That's just not coming across in any of the coverage. It's all being treated as a national thing. You have Biden out there talking about it, Janet Yellen and so on. Yes, that's the, they, they certainly have a role now because they've been sort of leading the bailout, as it were. But this, the, you know, the regulatory failure here was in California. And we're going to get into that. You and I both had exactly that thought and we've been looking into it. And so we'll, we'll compare notes about what we found. But first, let's just talk about your overall impressions of this whole situation. It's, it, it unfolded very, very um, quickly. As I mentioned earlier, we're taping this on Monday morning. I'm just saying that in case events overtake us um, by the time people listen to this. Um, it all started, got going, you know, towards the end of uh, the previous week, Thursday, Friday, then over the weekend. What are your thoughts just overall on the situation? Well, overall, we are looking at a giant federal bailout. I know they don't want to call it that, mm. but what they have decided to do is essentially pretend that the bank's bonds that they hold and treasuries that are now worth less 
than they used to be because interest rates have gone up and those are denominated at lower rates, they've decided to pretend that they're still worth the same amount of money they used to be. And they're going to make loans, wink, wink, loans against that collateral. And guess what? The collateral isn't worth what they say it's worth. So this is very similar to what went on in the 2008 crash, where you've got loans against something that's not worth what it used to be. In that case, it was housing. In this case, it's financial instruments. But it's absolutely a bailout. And now it seems to have been widened to a bailout of, is it all banks? They've made an exception to current federal law to do this, calling it an exception to the systemic risk law category standard. And uh, as, as an exception, it's anybody's guess how many more exceptions there will be. But it's certainly a bailout. I mean, it's interesting because when, when, it, when the news came out, um, it was Sunday uh, evening, and I was just getting ready to, to go on air with my Fox show, and I looked at it, and I read it multiple times, and I just thought, hang on a second, this looks too, too good to be true. They're saying it's not a bailout, but all the, all the depositors, all the customers of the bank, all their money will be protected. They won't lose a cent. Um, so that's uh, somehow that's going to be paid for because the bank can't pay for it. Um, but the taxpayer's not going to pay for it. I mean, that sounded too good to be true. And as I understand it, the mechanism through which that which they're going to do this is this thing that people may have it's been in the you know conversation a lot. The FDIC was it the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So that that exists. That's basically like an insurance fund. It's a pot of money that the banks, all the banks, pay money into um, for this kind of eventuality. And the insurance is up to $250,000 per customer if there's right. a bank failure. And if, if there is a bank failure, as an insurance policy, that fund meets, meets those um, requirements. But this is way over that, as it's been pointed out. What is it? 90% of the depositors in this bank are over 250,000. And right. so they're all there. And, you know, it could be sort of, you know, big companies you know, with, with a huge amount of money. So, I mean, the, the total balance sheet, was it like 200 billion, nearly something like that? There's a lot of money. That's going to be coming out of this pot of money that the banks pay for. And it sounds like what they're going to do is force the banks to replenish that fund. So the money, you know, technically the money flow here is from within the banking system but you know in the end that's going to come from where they where's that money going to come from you know they're not just going to give it away i mean it's, it's just it's it's and they're, and they're desperate for people not to think it's a bailout it's completely a bailout and it's backstopped by the united states treasury mm. so there you go this is this is totally it they're either going to print the money from the fed or they're going to backstop it from the treasury and either way you pay and by the way you remember those junk fees that the president said he wanted to get rid of you're, you're going to see more junk fees and higher junk fees from the banks as they seek to recoup what they're going to have to pay in FDIC fees. Exactly. That's that is it's you know like uh, I had Vivek Ramaswamy on, who knows about this in much more detail than I do. And and the simple point, as cliche but true, there's no such thing as a free lunch. The idea that you people aren't going to be paying for this um, is ridiculous. And the other point, you know, I, I have a few other observations. I mean, first of all, I, I as I mentioned, I live in Silicon Valley. I actually was once a customer of this bank when I did my tech startup. We went and banked with Silicon Valley Bank. And it's just like so many people say, you know, that that was because our investors told us to do that. They basically said, um, oh, you should bank here. And when you're starting a company and you're raising money, you really pay attention to your investors. I mean, they, they are funding your company. And it's interesting because one of the one of the threads that people have been pulling on here is what has been the relationship 
between Silicon Valley Bank and the venture capital industry and the venture capital firms. And, and, and there's something in there that, that people are starting to look at, which is sort of favorable terms for how they've operated. So there's a sort of internal cronyism, if you like, within Silicon Valley, not the banking industry, but right here in Silicon Valley, that is interesting. You know, the investors tell their, their startups that they invest in you, bank at SVB. Um, that'll be the best place. They understand entrepreneurs, all of that stuff. And then you get that, spiel, that pitch and spiel from the from Silicon Valley Bank. I remember when we were, had the first meeting and they were, we are very, you know, entrepreneur friendly and whatever. Um, but actually, there's some kind of relationship there with the venture firms, with the, with the investor community, um, which allows the investor community to... Um, to show that it has higher rates of return. I can't quite follow it. The Wall Street Journal had an interesting piece on that. I, that hadn't occurred to me until I read the Wall Street Journal editorial on this. But now it makes sense as to why we, we were encouraged to go to that bank. Well, that is very interesting because one of the questions that I have is why were so many companies storing their cash in accounts that were uninsured at low interest in a, in a bank where only the first 250000 was insured? Why did they have all their cash there? The smartest people in the world. So maybe you're answering the question. This yeah, I mean, we, it, was, it, was, it was very want. clear. The investors wanted it. It was very clear. It was, and, and you know, I didn't have any. I mean, you know, people are different. Different categories of people when they start companies. Um, I hadn't started a. I'd started businesses in the UK, but very different setup. You know, I, hadn't, I didn't have sort of venture capital investors and that kind of thing. So it's very different. It's a new world to me. When we moved, it was a year or two after we moved here. I didn't know the world at all. I had this idea. I started, you know, to operating in Silicon Valley in terms of getting investment and so on. And then you just, well, you know, you're very beholden to the investors. You literally don't exist without them. And so when they when they suggest something like that, you do it. And if I if they said that to me as a founder, I'm sure they say it to everyone. I think so. That that's very interesting. That's a first person witness account. Yes, of exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I know, and and you know, to be honest, we were you know, we were very small in the overall scheme of things, um, and the amount of the, the the sort of total amount of money we raised. Well, like you know, you say small. I mean, relative to Silicon Valley. I mean, if you add it all up, the total amount of money we raised um, and spent, I guess, over the period when I was there, you know, and and you know, as you start, obviously, you're just you're just getting investor money, and you don't have revenue. The revenue comes later, but the total amount of investor money we took in was about, I think, twelve million dollars. You know, so I mean, that's small compared to a lot of the, of the tech companies, but it is yes, not a small it, compared to normal all, people across the country. Exactly, that's a significant amount of money that that's they're right. throwing around there, and, and then they're directing you to one particular financial institution to deposit all your cash. This is something's going to come out about this that's not going to be very favorable. I can yeah. tell you what I found in my in my travels yes. through it. Uh, the first thing I noticed is that I had heard of Silicon Valley Bank. I'm in Los Angeles, but mm -hmm. I had heard of it. And where I heard of it is in the behested payments report. Aha! Uh -huh. Because I wrote It's a gift about, that keeps on giving the behested payments such, report. It's such a goldmine for journalism. The governor's wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, has a nonprofit called the California Partners Project, which she started, I think, in 2020 or 2021. And... It received $100,000 in calendar year 2021. It received $100,000 at the behest of Governor Newsom from Silicon Valley Bank. So for some reason, Governor Newsom called them for money and they paid it. I thought that was interesting because yes. 
Here's the question of how the California regulators missed what was happening. Can we just stop there for a second? Sure. And just this is a really important point, and this is the California connection. This bank is regulated in California. It right. is the regulatory. It's not the Fed. It's not the all these other agencies, the FDIC, all these acronyms being thrown around. The regulator of Silicon Valley Bank is the California. Let's just get the name of it correct. But you've got an interesting story in that it's the currently department, called. It's the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. Right. And it was invented in 2020. This is interesting. At Governor Newsom's at Governor Newsom's initiative. Mm -hmm. This was proposed. It was going to modernize mm -hmm. and revamp the current Department of Business Oversight, which dated to 2012 when Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown, did a reorganization of financial regulation, which followed the 2008 meltdown. And the idea in 2012 was to educate people so they wouldn't get scammed uh, by mortgage, re whatever it is, refinancing. And yeah. you want to educate people so that they know what they're doing. So. They had the Department of Business Oversight formed in 2012, and Governor Newsom changed that mm -hmm. in 2020, August of 2020. And what he said is that because of ineffective regulation from the National Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, this was going to now be a new model for the nation oh, again, of how to regulate. And, of course, it had all of the, we're going to do the right kind of investing uh, climate and the rest of it, that was all part of a climate and diversity and the whole list of um, Governor Newsom's priorities would mm -hmm. be part of it. And this new Department of Financial Protection Innovation and Innovation had new enforcement powers. And that's very significant because if you're a bank doing business in California, regulated by the state, and they have this whole list of priorities they want you to invest in for the good of society, and you don't, They've got enforcement powers to come after you, and they can destroy you. Just with the investigation, they can destroy you. So how much of the the woke stuff, let's mm -hmm. just call it, that the bank did was their own idea, and how much was because they well, were this under this Well, this is a very important regime. point. You've just, you just joined the dots between, um, which is, um, again, unsurprisingly, it's a point that Vivek Ramaswamy makes because he's one of the leading figures in the assault on um, the, the highly righteous and justified assault on woke capitalism. He wrote the book, of course, Woke Inc. And the point he made about the this DEI um, activity, diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever they call it, um, is this, that by pledge, I think he, he talked about a, an announcement that SVB made for a $5 billion sustainable investing fund or whatever. And his point was a, a thoughtful and nuanced one, which I think a lot of people and, and I, some politicians have, I think, taken it too far and said, well, the reason that it went bust was because of woke capitalism. And that's not what Vivek was saying. He was saying more subtly, but, but I think it totally connects with what you just said, that them doing this kind of thing, the um, sustainable investment, the box ticking DEI stuff, bought them insurance from the regulators. It meant that they had, not insurance, I shouldn't use that word because it's confusing, protection. It's like mm -hmm. protection money against the right. regulators. You do this political box ticking and we'll look the other way and mm -hmm. let you get away with 
what you need to get away with. And that's what went wrong here. And it was that's exactly what, um, you know, the, the, there was someone, again, it's not just you and I, and people might say, well, you're biased or whatever. Um, I think our biases are pretty well known when it comes to <laughs> California government. That's true. I, I consider it a rational investigation. Exactly. There but. you are. But no, no, I'm just to, just to be transparent with the audience. This point about the California regulator bearing the responsibility was made on NPR this morning on their um, financial uh, segment. And it was an it was a, a financial analyst uh, from New York, I think, very smart woman. Um, I've looked at her work. No, there's no political axe to grind there, and she said she made the point. This is and the, the the bank took reckless risks, and the regulator looked the other way. That was her phrase. Looked the other way, and that's where I think all this um, DEI, sustainable investing, blah blah blah, woke stuff. Um, for shorthand, comes in because you do the woke stuff, and we'll look the other way from your risky behavior. But okay. So one of the things that is a tip that there's more to dig into on this is that the governor put out a statement after this so-called bailout. He says it's not a bailout, but it's a bailout, was announced. And that is that this will allow affordable housing projects and our nonprofits to keep their doors open. And that just makes you wonder why affordable housing projects and nonprofits that the governor is calling out specifically, why were they banking with this venture capital bank? What is going on here? This just begins to sound like government intervention at a high level, maybe to the point of it being a political slush fund, where this is the bank that the political movers and shakers could go to to get their friends funded when nobody else would do it, rather than go face number crunchers who are unsentimental and, and very harsh and want to see balance sheets and want to see where the money's coming from. Maybe this was the place that people could go and not have so many questions. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I think it's a very. Uh, like, I mean, that's just what. How else do you explain some of this stuff? Um, and the and the thing that um, I think we should also just mention here um, is the is the, this is just yet another example of the absolutely kind of politically driven. Um, direction now for, for governance in the state. I mean, we've talked about this before in all sorts of areas where you have the governance work actually carried out, not by accountable uh, politicians, not necessarily by the legislature, by this, I mean, what you could call it the, the administrative state, the bureaucracy, all these commissions, and you see it when you look at things like the ban on gas cars, or what's going on in relation to storing water and so on. It's all these commissions and different agencies of the California state government that are set up and the governor appoints them and there's no scrutiny and no one knows who these people are and they just busily get to work basically running things and it seems running things into the ground increasingly and yes. now let's just look at this so this is the this is where you know you and I you know, our sort of research paths overlapped because I was looking at this agency too the um department the newly named the, the recreated department of financial protection and innovation so who is this you know who runs this who's that it is run by a commissioner who was appointed by gavin newsom clotilde hewlett no relation to hewlett packard um same name and just and get what are the qualifications of this person who in the in the views now of in the view of, of independent financial observers is the primary person responsible 
from a regulatory perspective for the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and everything that flows from it. Who is Clotilde Hewlett? Well, I found out by looking um, at a few uh, published uh, websites about her background. Here she is. She received her BA in political science from UC Berkeley and her JD from the UC Berkeley School of Law. So she's she studied politics and she's a lawyer. There's nothing anywhere in her background that has the slightest connection to financial regulation or any kind of financial expertise. Well, one of the things that is a mystery here is why nothing was noticed in the year prior to this collapse. For instance, just shortly before the collapse, the top executive of the bank was selling stock. Um, red flag? Anybody? And there were all of these other indications that the bank was being shorted by Wall Street and where were the regulators looking at this? They were nowhere. Where was Clotilde? Good question. Where was she? She well. This this is this is what happens when the government decides that it can quote harness the private sector for what it considers the priorities that need to be advanced. And in the case of Governor Newsom, the priority he is on about is climate change. So all of this, let's get rid of fossil fuels in California, needs to be mm. constantly imagined, well, we're going to have technology that does this. You can get rid of fossil fuels because we're going to have technology for electric trucks. We don't, but we're going to. Well, how do we know we're going to? Because he's funding, or through regulation, he's encouraging the funding of a lot of technology startups that Wall Street would turn down. Mm. Why would Wall Street turn them down? Because the smartest people in the room are making decisions every day about what's got prospects and what doesn't. Mm. And if you lose out in the marketplace of ideas, you can come to California and you can be subsidized by our climate-friendly policies that look the other way, especially if you tick the boxes, as you said, of diversity. Well, here we are. I mean, this is what. Yes, and this, this is the this is the financial regulator. I mean, I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, no, not, not disparaging what she's done. Um, I'm just saying it's got nothing to do with financial regulation. I mean, I'm just reading right. here from, from this is a sort of profile on it's it's actually a, a, a profile of her on something called 150 Years of Berkeley Women. Um, it says she focused on government contracting, crisis management, appropriations, and diversity initiatives. Right when she was a, she was a lawyer um, throughout her career. Um, She's been committed in raising the next generation of leaders. She's co-founder and first president of Black Women Lawyers of Northern California. You know, I mean, it's just, well, there's nothing. I can't find a single thing. I mean, please correct. If someone can, who's, who's listening or what, you know, can find some evidence that she's qualified to, to, for this highly technical position. I mean, this isn't just a sort of general question of public policy where you can put someone in who's just a smart person with lots of experience and different bits of the government. It sounds like that's what she is. I'm not knocking, you know, I'm not, I'm not being at all um, critical of her general uh, qualifications for a general job, but this is a highly specific job with real implications for our financial system as we've seen. And it's very, very technical. Yes, it is. And you would you would hope to see someone who has a background in finance yeah. or auditing or something where you could recognize the danger signs of something that's that's puffy and inflated and is going to crash. And that's what happened here. And it's going to take down a lot of taxpayer dollars with it, unfortunately. It's, it's just, and the yeah. way that they're bailing it, the way that they're bailing it out looks to me like they don't want anyone to be blamed for this. Mm. So they're trying to widen out the bailout. 
and they're going to open these loans at the Fed to all the banks that have too many depositors over the insured limit. Something's really wrong there because the insured limit is to protect regular people with their life savings. It goes to $250,000 and above that, you're assumed to be financially sophisticated enough to hedge your risk mm -hmm. and to be somewhere else, but you're not gonna get the government insurance. So this is very sketchy. All of these very large millionaire, billionaire type investors putting their cash into uninsured accounts and now the government is announcing, aha, we've decided to insure it. Yeah. And that's just wrong. It's just wrong. Yeah, and and it's, it's about, I mean, the, the, the technical term for it is moral hazard, which is exactly. that now you, and you, people may have heard that term used a lot, and it's a really imp important and apt term here because it means that it actually encourages more risky behavior in the future. Right. If you think, well, I can get away with it because nothing will happen to me, um, and I don't need to be that careful because right. that's why the bailout is right. Again, it's not just us saying it's a bailout. Um, it was... I'll go back to NPR this morning. You know, don't always cite them favorably, but the but the financial. Um, this was not the guest. This was the 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 host of the financial segment this morning, talking about it. Well, and he said, well, it, and the, the the reporter was saying, oh, it's not a bailout. And he said, well, it's bailout ish, isn't it? Bailout adjacent for sure, which I thought was a nice way of putting it. I mean, that's it is it's basically <laughs> what it is. Um, bailout adjacent. I like that. Yeah, and they and they and they're desperate for people not not to think it's a bailout because there is a kind of and and it's a, one of those unfortunate things where the name um, it just is is. I mean, I saw Charles Payne on Fox on on Fox News. Charles Payne for the Fox Business Network, really fired up about this, um, saying this is a bailout of the elites. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, it absolutely is. And it's a bailout of the political agenda also. And the next time you bounce a check and get a $600 fee for bouncing a check, you can look back at this and say, ah, the FDIC is charging my bank for bailing out or, quote, not bailing out. Silicon Valley Bank. That's what's happening exactly. here. They get the sports cars and you get the bill. <laughs> and, and, and again, it's, it's another example, and we'll leave it here, but um, as I said on Twitter, it's an, yet another example of the whole country paying for the incompetent governance of California. Yes, exactly. Got to just um, you know keep focusing on all this, Susan, because what it tells you, and on all these issues actually, digging into the details and trying to kind of find out, well, what is exactly going on here? It's so important because most of the coverage hasn't even touched on any of this stuff. Anyway, that's why we're always pleased to have you. That's why we do this show. Um, thank you, Susan. Great to see you today. Thank you, Steve. For more like this, make sure, of course, you follow us um, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Follow The Steve Hilton Show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you soon for the next episode.